scripture reading for this morning's lesson is taken from 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 10 and 11. That's 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 10 and 11. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. Once again, I'm delighted at your presence this morning. I appreciate so very much your being here. And for those of you who are present here in the building, as well as those who are joining us for worship online, we're delighted that you are with us. The subject of happiness is one of universal interest. That feeling that comes when all is well with you, I think that you will find that to be a universal desire. Everybody in their right mind wants to be happy. And yet think about how many people in our world who are distraught, disappointed, and disillusioned by life. We know that at least one million people take their own lives every year around this world. That's one every 40 seconds. That's a sobering statistic to even think about. Many of you remember Robin Williams. He looked like a happy-go-lucky, no-care-in-the-world type guy. And yet, of course, just a few years ago, the country was shocked by his suicide. And we now know that the character that he portrayed on television and the persona that he represented when he was on stage was no more true than a Halloween mask represents the person who was wearing it. Certainly, we know that when we consider the subject of atheism, that there's a, a lot of people are the subject of happiness. So there's a lot of people in the world who who don't know how to handle life. They're terrified by life. The prospects of getting up in the morning and meeting the challenges of the day are just more than they can bear. They'd really like to be able to do exactly what Peter is suggesting in our text, and that is to, to love life and see good days. But they don't know how. They, they're looking for direction in their lives, but they don't have that kind of spiritual compass that gives them the direction and, and the, the moorings that they need to be able to accomplish that. There are a number of things that will not provide happiness, and I want to begin with a short list of those before we consider our subject this morning. First of all, as I prematurely mentioned a moment ago, you, you, you'll not find happiness in atheism, in the denial of the very existence of God. Those who are atheists cannot do what Peter said. They cannot love life and see good days for a number of reasons. We, we know the French agnostic Robert Ingersoll was the one who made the statement, I wish I had never been born. Lord Byron, one of the brighty stars to arise on the English poetical horizon, died at a young age because of a wasted and dissipated life. And he said, the, the worm and the slugger are better than I. Someone has asserted that the loving of life surely can be found in lust and pleasure, and yet one of America's most heralded playboys said, I... Suppose that I am the most miserable man in the world. That's not where you'll find happiness. Nor is happiness found in fame and popularity. Lord Beaconsfield of England had both, and yet he said life is a grand mistake. Not in power or military might do we find the secret of happiness. You're well acquainted with Alexander the Great, who having conquered the world, at the age of 30 sat down and cried because there were no more worlds to conquer. And then he died in a drunken stupor at the young age of 33 because he could not control and conquer himself. And yet Peter, in our text, by contrast, says that if you want to love life and see good days, 
then there are certain things that we must that must necessarily follow. There are certain things that he says that we need to do in order to be able to accomplish that. And let's walk through those if we can briefly this morning. First of all, if you'll notice our text, he says, If a man would love life and see good days, let him refrain his tongue from evil and his lips that they speak no guile. Or, or deceit is the probably the better, uh, easier understood word there, that, that they speak no deceit. And that's certainly one of the, the great secrets to getting along with people and, and learning how to be happy and to enjoy life is learning how to control our speech, learning how to control the tongue. I remember one day... In high school, I've told you this story before, but according to my records, it's been 11 years. I, I, was, I was playing basketball before the school hours started along with some friends of mine in the, in the gymnasium. And, and one of my friends was also playing, and he was on my team. And, and on, a, on a rebound, a fellow came down on my friend with an elbow. I mean, caught him real good, and it was quite apparent that it was intentional. Well, the next time they hit the boards for a rebound, my friend came down on him with both elbows. Well, the other guy said, if you did that on purpose, I have a good mind to punch you in the jaw. And my friend Jimmy said, well, there it is. About 20 seconds later, when we were scraping Jimmy up off the gym floor, I looked at him and said, you know, God never gave me a whole lot of intelligence. But I think even I have better sense than to say, well, there it is. You see, learning to love life and see good days really comes from learning how to control our tongue. Watch what you say. And that's true in every aspect, in every arena of life. But then Peter said, turn away from evil and do good. That doesn't surprise any of us. That's a clarion call. That's the central message of the Bible. It's to turn away from evil. Negatively, that just means leave evil alone. And positively, it means to, to be upright and to choose the right path morally and spiritually. As determined by the will of God as stipulated in his word. And when you do that, Peter says, then you will learn how to love life and, and see good days. It's, it's that simple and yet also that profound. I'd like to suggest, if I can, in the next few minutes, four or five points that will, will help us to do what Peter has invoked upon us, and that is to love life and see good days. We have but one life to live, and it's fleeting. We all know that. And so we just make the best of it and realize the purpose of our life and, and set about to fulfill that purpose. The first principle comes in the form of suggestion that Jacob gave to his sons that's recorded in Genesis chapter 43. You may remember the context. We know that Joseph had been sold by his own brothers into slavery down in Egypt. But while Joseph's father, Jacob, thought Joseph to be long dead and had been mourning all of those years that he thought that Joseph was dead, we know that Joseph, because of his wisdom and because of God's divine guidance and his providence, Joseph was placed over the entire food supply down in Egypt and he was under the authority of, of Pharaoh himself. That's how high he had risen in the hierarchy of the government of, of Egypt. Well, the course came, a time came during a famine that Jacob sent all of his sons, except his youngest son, now that's critical, to get grain from Egypt during that famine. But Joseph instructed his brothers that they would have to bring their youngest son, Benjamin, back with them to Egypt if they wanted to get grain. You see, so much time had passed that the brothers did not even recognize Joseph as being their long-lost brother. Well, the father, Jacob, doesn't want his youngest son to leave on the journey. But finally, the circumstances become such that Jacob has to capitulate. He has to allow Benjamin to go with his brothers back to Egypt for grain. And so he, 
he allowed them to take Benjamin along. And then it seems as though almost as an afterthought, Jacob said, maybe we can sweeten up the deal a little bit. Why don't you, and these are the words of the Bible, take along a little honey. I'm suggesting that one way that each of us can learn how to love life and see good days is to do that very thing. And I'm suggesting that, of course, figuratively speaking. You see, life would be a a whole lot better for most of us if we would learn to just put a little honey in it. Even just the honey involved in a few more pleasant faces. You see, there's nothing more contagious than a smile, but running a close second is a frown. You can pick out the biggest grouch in any crowd because involuntarily what we feel in our hearts is reflected on our faces. Now, once you get used to looking pleasant, it's not near as hard as you might think. If you're not used to it, you might think that smiling and having a pleasant disposition and and a pleasant demeanor about you might be very difficult, but in reality, it's not. And so my first suggestion would be to learn to wear a smile. Maybe one of the reasons we have so much trouble convincing other folks that they ought to be Christians is, is because we don't look like we're enjoying it much ourselves. And if we're not enjoying our relationship to God and to God's people, then why in the world should they? I remember hearing about one little boy that saw the long-faced mule down in the barn, and he said, poor old Ned's caught grandpa's religion. Well, thats I know that there are people who judge their religion and, and their seriousness of religion by the length of their face, but I don't believe that to be so. I don't believe that's what God would have in mind for his people. Paul was the one, I remind you, who said, rejoice in the Lord always, and again I say rejoice. Of all people, I'm suggesting that Christians ought to be the happiest people on the face of the earth. In the same connection, Solomon said, that which makes a man to be desired is kindness. I would like to also suggest that maybe as we're taking along a little honey, a part of that honey would be simply to be kind to people. I think the, the characteristic, the quality of kindness is one that each of us ought to pursue. Someone has said it this way, love that is unkind is simply the wrong kind. So kindness is basically the art of of considering another person's welfare even above their own. That and the the concept of agape love are closely connected. We have to take into consideration the feelings of other people. Watch this carefully, especially as we're talking about people. Do Christians gossip? Sometimes they do, yes. And we need to be very careful that we don't do that. And so we need to be careful that when we're talking about a person, that if what we're saying about that person will not do some positive good for that person, then we don't need to say it. We just need to refrain our tongues from evil and our lips that they speak no deceit, just as Peter has suggested. And you know, that's just the practical application of the precept that Jesus set in place that we've come to know as the golden rule. Whatsoever you would that men should do unto you, do you even so unto them. For this is the law and the prophets. And so if we will treat other people with kindness, then we'll find a great deal more kindness coming back in our direction. There's a story that I've shared again years ago, but I want to share it again with you this morning because it's germane to the subject. About a woman who went about the country lecturing. That was how she made her living. And her biggest appeal was the fact that she displayed such joy and pleasantness in her dealings with other people. I mean, she was just a ray of sunshine, and everybody enjoyed listening to her speak, not only because she was an expert in her field, but just because she was a kind person and had that kind of very positive disposition about her. On one occasion, after one such lecture, 
a reporter had an opportunity to be able to interview this woman. And in the interview, he asked, now tell me, have you always had this sunny disposition about you? And she said, no. In fact, I used to be a grouch. That is, until one day, there was a tramp that came to my house and helped me improve my disposition. The reporter, of course, sensing that there was a story there, asked her for details. And she said, well, the way I was brought up, my father always insisted that, that we all, all the kids work hard and that we, we do our par- part in, in whatever job was at hand and that we certainly not ever ask for a handout. And so we, we learned to, to despise the, the panhandlers and the bums. That, and, and that just stayed with us for the rest of our lives. And that was the way I was brought up. She went on to say, and after I got married, we moved in a house that was close to a railroad track. And in those days, that invited the hobos to come to the door and ask for a handout. And one day, she was busy in the kitchen. And a knock came at the door. She opened the door, and sure enough, there was an old guy with his hat in his hand. And he said, please, ma'am, I would like to work for something to eat. And she lit into that guy. And she said something along the lines of, you lazy bum, if you would work, you wouldn't have to be out here bumming around like you're doing. Now get out of here before I call my husband. And he just stood there. And she said, I mean it. I'm going to call my husband. And he said, ma'am, your husband's not here. And then she shrieked at him. She said, what are you talking about? What do you mean my husband's not here? And he said, if he is, he's sick. Because there's no man who's well that would stay in a house with a woman like you. Well, you can imagine how indignant she was at that remark. But then she began to think. Her husband hadn't been around much lately. It seemed to have looked for every excuse to stay out of the house. She said, that was the turning point in my life. And I deliberately and consciously changed my attitude. And I began to be kinder and more positive, not only toward my husband, but toward others as well. So we need to remember that one quality to be desired, church, is, and is absolutely essential to loving life, is the quality of kindness. Someone may say, well, you know, if you feel good all the time, that's great, but you never had arthritis like I have. Or you never had to put up with the problems that I've had to put up with. Well, you know, to have a, a smile on your lips and a song in your heart, it doesn't come about by accident. And it isn't determined by the circumstances of life. No, we, we just, just got to look around us. And we've also got to look within us. And we've got to be able to say with David, this is the day that the Lord has made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. Psalm 118, 24. That is, we make the deliberate choice to rejoice every day of our lives. Or else we'll be like this woman that we were just describing. One man was waiting for a bus on a busy city street. And he heard a song above the din of the crowd. And he looked around and he saw a man going along the sidewalk on a little modified skateboard. The man had absolutely no legs. They had been cut off at the hip. And and they were both gone and, and he had these little short stick things that he had in each hand that helped him to keep his balance and also to propel him forward as he moved along the sidewalk on that that little modified skateboard. And as he went along, he was just singing at the top of his voice as if he didn't have a care in the world. And the fellow who, who saw him stopped him and said, hey, buddy, how is it that you're, you're able to give such a happy song in your condition? And the fellow said, well, admittedly, when I first had my accident, things looked pretty dark and life was bleak. He said, but you know what? I began to look around me 
And I noticed so many other people who are so much worse off than I was, then I could sing again. If we'll just look around us at the condition of others, I really believe that we'll come to be more appreciative of what we do have and for the way that God has blessed us. So suggestion number one is to take along a little honey. Secondly, is to get your priorities straight. You know, we're living in a time when there are just so many demands made on us. I agree with the fellow who said that oftentimes God has not reasoned out of our lives. He's, he's crowded out. That's true for a lot of good people. But, but we're all busy and we all have a lot of things on our plate. And I remember the days when I used to vainly think that I could do just about anything and everything that came along. That, that I'd have the time to be able to do that if only I had the inclination for it. And it didn't take me long to realize that that just simply was not the case. I used to look forward to, to the time when I had enough to do to keep me busy. And, and I can sure tell you that that time has long since come. I used to think that there'd be time that I could follow this interest and pursue that interest to its end and, and that one to its end. And I see now that that's just not possible. And you know and I know that time is just too scarce and life is too short. James was spot on, wasn't he, when he said life is just a mist. It's here for a little while, and then it vanishes away, James 4.14 said. That's true for all of us. It doesn't matter if you're in kindergarten or if you're an octogenarian. It, we, we all live busy lives, it seems, and our moments are taken up by the minutia of our lives. You know, early in life, you have to decide where you're going to go. And you also have to decide how you're going to get there. Because before you can turn around, it's over. There's not enough time in life to do everything that you want to do. So here's my suggestion to you this morning. Since we can't do everything that we want to do, or, or maybe even in certain moments of meditation, we think, I can't do all the things that I need to do. What we have to do is to learn to put first things first. We have to learn to prioritize. Can't do everything, and so I'm going to make sure that I'm spending every moment of every day doing those things that are most important, those things that are most conducive to my spiritual growth and to the betterment of those around me. And those are the things that will be on my top priority list. Here's how Jesus said it in the Sermon on the Mount. You know the passage, Matthew six thirty three. He said to his disciples then and now, but seek you first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And then all of these things, these material things, they'll be added into you. Again, Matthew 6 and verse 33. We, we know that's in the Bible. And we know that that ought to be our number one priority, to seek God and his kingdom and his righteousness first. And yet 2,000 years later, we still struggle with it. But still, Jesus said, that's, that's the first thing. And what you have to do is to make sure that you're spending your time keeping the main thing the main thing. We, we need people who are willing in our day to stand for what's right, regardless of the circumstances and regardless of the cost. That, that needs to be very high on our list of priorities. People who will stand for something and, and who won't trim their sails for every wind that blows, but who see the destiny of their lives outlined in God's revealed will, and then they set out to be able to fulfill what God wants us to do with our lives. And, and I'm telling you that people like that are always in desperate demand. You know the story. Back in ancient times, the Chinese built the Great Wall of China, one of the great wonders of the world. They made it 20 feet high, 13 feet thick, and they had guards every 100 yards so that no one would be able to penetrate that security, and they said this wall will never fall to the battering ram. And they were exactly right. It never did. But it fell in a sense. 
They failed to protect that nation because the, the enemies bribed the guards to simply open the gates and the enemy walked in. I'm, I'm saying this morning that we need honesty and we need honor in all walks of life today. In fact, honesty is just one of the necessities of character that is for God's people. But honesty also calls for courage to stand by the convictions that we hold. That needs to be high on our priority list as well. For a long time, I wondered why the voluntary state, volunteer state of, of Tennessee had chosen as one of its heroes a man by the name of Sam Davis. And then one day I read some, some biographical information about Sam Davis, and I, I came to understand why. Sam Davis was in the war between the states. He had contact with the Confederate Army that gave him some inside information regarding his strategy and, and military plans. That, that is, he had some very important and critical information. One day he was caught behind enemy lines and captured. And he was carried into a Union camp where he stood before a board of officers. And one of them said, we, we know that you, and you know that you've been identified as a Confederate spy and the punishment for spying is death. But there's someone that we want even more than you. We know that you had to get your information and your orders from someone higher up. And that's the person. That's the name that we want. You give us that name and you have our word of honor that we will send you safely back to your own lines. Sam Davis was just a, a man in his early 20s. And he said, sir, I gave my word of honor that under no circumstances would I divulge the source of military information that you now want. Well, for several days they cajoled. And then for several days, they tortured Sam Davis. And then Sam Davis was taken out and hanged by the neck until he was dead. And I will tell you why. Because he regarded his word more valuable than his life. And you know, folks, until we found a cause that's greater than life itself, we've not really found a cause worth serving. There, there must be the courage to stand up. Convictions are not worth having unless they're worth defending. And I know that you're not going to face a, a situation like Sam Davis, nor am I, or likely will anyone, but still we need, we need conviction, and, and we need courage to stand behind those convictions, even in the smaller areas of life. Somebody says to you, let's go get a beer. What are you going to do? Somebody says, let's go clubbing. Let's check out the nightlife. What are you going to do? Someone starts dumping his garbage in your mind with a vulgar story. How are you going to respond to that? See, that's where we need a conviction and the courage to stand behind those convictions every moment of every day. Well, somebody says, well, you know, what about my particular situation? Well, I don't know what, how it is with your situation. But I do know that if you're going to be a servant of the Almighty God, you're going to have to stand on the road to right regardless of the circumstances. And that takes courage. And we all acknowledge that. I'll tell you how one man responded to that kind of situation a guy by the name of lester starling years ago obeyed the gospel he, he was trying his best to live right here he was a brand new christian had a job as a carpenter and anyway they were putting roofs on houses in a particular subdivision and, and and lester was was on that roof with a couple of his co-workers and and as he was working with a, a couple of other guys one of the guys said hey hey did you hear about and, and he started in on an absolutely filthy story and Lester, as nice and diplomatic as he knew how, he said, hey, fellas, I, I, I really wish you wouldn't talk like that. But if you want to talk like that, please at least don't do it when I'm around and have to hear it. And, and the man said, ah, shut up, preacher boy. It's time you learned uh, to, about life. And he went on with his, with, his, with his story. 
Well, there was poor Lester stuck up on a rooftop with those guys spewing out their verbal garbage, and he just didn't know what to do. Uh, He wasn't long out of the world, and again, a brand new growing Christian, and he didn't know how to best respond to that, so he thought about it. And he prayed hard about it that night. And the next morning, he came to work, and another guy started in on another dirty story. And Lester said, now wait, I've already told you guys, I don't want to hear that. Oh, be quiet, preacher. And he went on with his story. Well, Lester just reared back and began to sing, there's a great day coming. There's a great day coming. Now, wait a minute, preacher boy. And he continued singing, there's a great day coming by and by. They said, now be quiet. Some workers from the next house over hollered, hey, are you ladies having a prayer meeting over there? Well, the last thing in the world those old fellows wanted others to think was that they were having a religious service. So after verse 1, Lester said, now, you want verse 2? Well, the next day he had to give them verse 2. But he never got to verse 3. So I just don't know how you're going to approach this old world in which we live and how you're going to rise above it. But somehow you must, you must do it to maintain the integrity of your convictions. If you're going to stand for what God wants you to be standing for. I tell you what, even if I can't change the world in my little circle of influence, I can make dead level certain that the world has not changed me. In the third place, in order to love life and see good days, give your life and service to your fellow man. You might have suspected that that was coming, and I did not want to disappoint you. There are men like N.B. Hardiman and Batsell Barrett Baxter, Rex A. Turner, Leonard Johnson, a host of others, some of them sitting right here in this audience or joining us online, who have given their lives to Christian education, and they're to be commended and venerated for that. Others give their lives to to mission work in some distant land, sometimes in difficult places, far away from their extended family and away from things that are familiar to them. Others give their lives in service to others on a local and congregational level. Many people, both men and women alike, demonstrate that the truly happy life, just like Peter said in our text, is the life of service to their fellow man. It isn't asking what's best for me, it's asking what's best for others. It isn't serving my own best interests, my own selfish ambitions. It's learning to look around and see what other people need and go about trying to meet those needs and to serve those people. And then guess what? We find ourselves the happiest that we've ever been, living a more fulfilled life than we could ever imagine. And that's exactly what Peter is telling us to do in this text, isn't it? Jesus said, he that would be greatest among you, let him become the servant of all. And that's the key to loving life and seeing good days right there. And certainly the Lord himself was a prime example of a person who gave himself in in service and sacrifice to others. Right up to the very end when they nailed him to a cross. He once said, the son of man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister and to give his life a ransom for many. Now that, folks, is the secret of true and lasting happiness. I read somewhere, and of course it's a fable, and I'm sure it's one that you've heard before, but I think it well depicts the point. One man died, he went to hell. And when he got there, he was surprised to see a great band of people there surrounded by all sorts of delicious, delectable food. And, and there was a great long banquet table with people down each side, but all the people were cursing and swearing, quite obviously unhappy. And he wondered what in the world was wrong until he got closer. And he noticed that they were all having to eat with a a fork. 
And the fork was about three and a half feet long. It only had a cool tip and a cool handle. And that, the rest of it was burning hot. And, and so the people could not get the, the food into their mouths. And, and so obviously they were just, they were cursing and they were in uproar. Well, according to the fable, the man was also allowed to visit heaven. And again, he was surprised to see exactly the same setup as he had seen down in hell. But here, everybody was happy. And they were laughing. And they were clearly enjoying one another's company. But he got closer and he could see why. And, and when he got there, he saw that the people on one side of the table were feeding the people on the other side of the table. And that was the difference. And you know, that may very well determine whether or not we go to heaven, whether or not we learn to put our fellow man first and to love and to serve those around us. And if you don't believe that, you need to reread Matthew chapter 25. I think that it will persuade you otherwise. It's very true that we serve God by serving others. I was reading in Reader's Digest one time that if you want to stand in the world's shortest line, stand in the line of people who think they are overpaid, and you will get to the front of that line in a hurry. I'm just suggesting to you this morning that we need to be the kind of people who are not just concerned about me and mine and what I want and what's good for me, but rather how I can serve and be of service to others, and you will be in the short line to happiness. In the fourth place, if you're going to love life and see good days, let's be energetic and enthusiastic. There is no grace in slow moving. There is no virtue in walking about on your lower lip. The prophet said, Cursed be the man who does the Lord's work negligently. And that's exactly what we're talking about. Solomon in Ecclesiastes 9 and verse 10 said, Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all of your might. That's an Old Testament principle that needs to be exercised in the New Testament church, folks. There must be the energetic application of the work that God has given us. And it needs to be done enthusiastically, and it needs to be done optimistically. Of all the optimists that I have ever met in life or in Scripture, I don't think that there's one that I could name any greater than the Apostle Paul. How about you? I mean, Paul, who wrote most of the letters of the New Testament, yet wrote those many times in very dire, hard, difficult circumstances, and yet he was always optimistic because his optimism was based upon a firm Genuine faith in God. He trusted God to take care of him and to handle life from day to day. And, and so that's why Paul was such an optimist. And, and we know that he was put in prison on occasion on false charges, totally innocent. And yet he wrote to his Philippian brothers on the outside and said, Brethren, I want you to watch this carefully. I want you to know that the things that have befallen me have turned out for the furtherance of the gospel. Paul could see good even in his Stay in prison. I, I'm here and I'm able to make contact with people that otherwise I would never make contact with so that I can convert them to the Lord Jesus Christ. From a Roman prison, he wrote, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. Now, if we truly trust in God, then we're going to be the optimist in life. We'll know that regardless of what befalls us, that God can, can bring that and work that together for our good, just as he has promised to do in Romans 8 and verse 28. One Bible writer says, my God is able. I like that. What he was saying was that he did not have a God that was so small that he could not help him when his back was against the wall, when he really needed God's help. My God is able. We need to take a dose of that every morning, don't we? If we're going to be enthusiastic and optimistic about life. In fact, once when Paul was on his way to Rome, 
Guess what? A prisoner again. That's a recurring theme in Paul's ministry. The ship was wrecked, the Bible says. And all the men on the board of the ship, except Paul, were absolutely scared to death. Paul wasn't afraid, though. He wasn't arrogant. He wasn't overconfident. He wasn't foolhardy, but he was confident and assured because he said, and I'm quoting Paul right here, An angel of God, whose I am, came to me and explained that we will all survive. Listen to these last four words. And I believe God. When we really get to the point in our lives where we can say with that same level of confidence, and I believe God, a new day will dawn in our spiritual lives. You have my assurance that that's so. There is every reason in the world to be optimistic when we come to put our full weight down in our trust and faith in God. And then lastly, Peter says, and, and we're, we're filling in the flesh, if you would love life and see good days, we really need to take to heart the admonition of Solomon in Proverbs twenty three twenty three to buy the truth and sell it not. You know, not many of us have the means or the money to go into a store and to be able to say, I want this, I want that, and I want that. Just wrap it up, and I'll take it home with me. In fact, while I'm here, I might just buy a franchise for this entire store. No, most of us are not in that kind of financial situation. What most of us have to do when we're interested in any particular item is to say, uh, how much is that? But Solomon, or maybe I should say God through Solomon's inspired pen, did not say Why don't you price the truth? What he said was, you buy the truth at any price, and then you sell it at no price. I'm here to remind you this morning that if we do not hold to the truth of God, then all the preaching and all the energetic work in the world that we might do in his name is in vain. It will not accomplish a hill of beans. I know you've heard the story about the pilot who came on the PA system and announced, folks, we've got some good news and some bad news. The bad news is we're lost. We've lost all radio contact. We've lost all radar capabilities. We have no idea where we are. But the good news is we are making excellent time. (laughs) Folks, if we don't have the truth, if we do not hold to God's eternal truth, regardless of, of, of what we're doing, We're all going to end up in the wrong place. This is our compass that will guide us each and every day of our lives. If only we will study it and we will adhere to it. If you don't have the truth, folks, you're going to wind up in the wrong place. It's only by our adherence to this unchanging truth of God that we can get where we want to go eventually in life. And we can, just like Peter said, enjoy the trip there. We need desperately to buy the truth. And sell it at no price. Let's return to our text one more time. If a man would love life and see good days, let him refrain his tongue from evil and his lips if they speak no deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. If you're outside of Christ this morning, you may find fleeting pleasure in your earthly existence. But you will not find lasting happiness. I will stake my life and my reputation on that statement. You need to find the peace of God that surpasses all understanding, that comes only in knowing that you are spiritually justified and that you are right in the sight of your God. 
I wonder this morning, is, is your religion a burden or a blessing? You see, in all my years of being a Christian, and in all my years of being a gospel preacher, I've only met two kinds of Christians. Those who enjoy their religion and those who merely endure it. And so I'm asking you this morning, which kind are you? And which kind would you like to be? If you're not a child of God, then we want to encourage you to put Christ on in baptism based upon your sincere faith in him, your, your courage to confess him as God's son. We would be delighted to baptize you in Christ before we leave this place this morning while we stand and while we sing.